Pride Nation 101. Welcome to Pride Nation 101. Queer voices, music, opinions, and lives. From Highway 101 to the world. I'm Roland Corey Medina. And I'm Chad Oliver Swimmer, coming to you from the unceded land, now known as Casper, California. Welcome. Today on Pride Nation, we have a very special show in store for you. We have an extended conversation with Tatum Wakapi Wee, a queer Kashaya Pomo indigenous rights activist. With a cameo from their mother, Tanda Blue Bear, speaking on what it means to be two-spirit. How it is to grow up in the U.S. of A. as a queer indigenous person. And how we are more than just ones and zeros. More than just female and male stereotypes. Stay, Stay tuned! tuned. Tatum, welcome to Pride Nation 101. Thank you for being here. How are you? I am doing good. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to be sharing the space with you today. My name is Tatum Starr. I am from the Pomo Nation, a Kashaya band, and I identify as two-spirit. My pronouns are they, them is preferred, but he and she is also acceptable as well. So the two of us really appreciate the open-ended evolution of identity in the larger queer world, especially how it creates such a nice open space for a lot of us to blossom and grow as people. And I heard you say a little bit ago that you identified as two-spirited, which makes us very happy to hear. What does that mean to you? So two-spirit is something that many indigenous communities identified with pre-colonization uh, Two-Spirit originally was not intended to um, to describe the LGBT community, but rather to describe one's position in the tribe. And to I for people who were masculine and female presenting. And over time, this has evolved into uh, kind of an umbrella term that a lot of indigenous people in the LGBT community refer to themselves as two-spirit now. Tatum's mother, Tonda Blue Bear, joined the conversation. Hi, my name is Tanda Blue Bear. I just kind of wanted to add on to the two-spirit discussion because the the term two-spirit was kind of coined in probably like the early 90s. And it was for indigenous people because at that time, we really weren't included in the different organizations and stuff. They were really uh, geared sort of, at least in our area, towards white youth. And I don't know if you know anything about like native culture, but we have cultural differences. And so because our LGBTQ youth didn't feel very included, the term two-spirit came along. And so that was meant for indigenous people only that wasn't meant for everybody and it was a way of bringing the lgbtq community within our indigenous communities together into a space where they felt safe where they felt heard and where they felt seen but when we think of like two-spirit what we're saying is that like two-spirit isn't necessarily a sexuality what it is is it's means that you carry both spirits within you, both the masculine and the feminine. And so a lot of two spirits do take the position of healers and things like that in the tribes because we're able to see not only from a woman's point of view, but we can also see from a masculine point of view as well. And so um, oftentimes it was um, two-spirited people because two-spirit came after colonization, obviously. Prior to that, a lot of uh, places around the world had third gender and that was more along what a two spirit was. And they were um, highly respected in the tribe as healers, visionaries and things like that. And so they held a very respected uh, place within a tribe. My own coming to terms with being loving with men was so healing and it felt like it brought healing for 
the people who I knew and the people I was around. In the 90s, I spent a lot of time with a Lakota man who he was gay and he you was the first person I heard the word two-spirited from. And he definitely struggled. He, because of within his own family, there was a lot of homophobia. He couldn't go back, but he definitely had a very different take on what it meant to be a gay man than I did. And I learned a lot from him. Right. I wanted to interject something on the side that comes from a book that we read from last month, Juno Dawson's What's the Tea? Juno writes that all across history and all around the globe, there are lots of records that show that ancient civilizations recognized more than two genders. In some of the earliest stories ever written, literally carved in stone, the Sumerians wrote about a type of person who is neither a man or a woman. That's from the second millennium BCE. Juno goes on to make a long list of culturally recognized third, fourth, fifth genders. There's Chibados from Angola, Ashtimi from Ethiopia, Mashongo from Kenya, Mangaiko from Congo, Palaona from Micronesia, Fafaini from Samoa, Mukshe from Zapotec culture, Sworn Virgins from Albania, Macedonia, and Europe, Wakawahini from New Zealand, Mahuahini from Hawaii, Two-Spirit from North America, Hijra from India and Pakistan, South Asia, which are actually legally recognized. Katoi from Thailand and Asia, also legally recognized. It's hard enough to be female in America. Okay, it's double hard to be a native female in America. And then we're also native female and queer in America. And we have to remember that America is just barely seeing that we're human beings. And I think it was last year when we were in Washington, D.C., we actually had people coming up to us and were surprised that we were still around. Like they really thought that we were extinct. And so, I mean, that happened in Georgia also where they're like, wow, are you real Indians? Like seriously. And we were, he, the, and the guy was like, I don't mean like, I don't know if that's a, a offensive term or not, but I've never seen any of you guys before. And we have ribbon skirts on and stuff. And he was like, Whoa, but a lot of people were like that. And so like, it, it's, it's insane. So the fact that some people in this country don't even know we exist, other people in this country hate us on some level for one of the things that we are. And then, so when we envelop all of those things, and that's why I said a lot of uh, people coined that term to call in our LGBTQ peoples. So they would have a space that was uh, safe and allowed them to be themselves. And so, um, yeah, it's changed a lot since uh, colonization, like third gender, whatever, two, two spirit now, and I think just every generation comes up with a lot of different um, names for, for those things. But it is extremely hard. It was hard for me growing up. I, I, I'm 46. Okay, so but way back when, it was really hard to be Native in America. It was really hard to be gay in America. It was really hard to be female in America, just as it is today. Um, and my daughter, she'll tell you more about um, her struggle and everything, but She's doing fantastic, though. She's an amazing human being, though. And I'm really hoping that we can get somewhere in this world where we can see each other the way that we saw each other before colonization, which is as people. That's, you know, that whole uh, racism, homophobia, all of those things. Those are all colonized mentalities. Those are those were brought over by the colonizer, um, not us. And that was that whole male dominance thing. And it had to it's scared of everything that's not exactly like it. And so um, we're hoping to distinguish some of that. And and the seventh fire here is going to ignite a whole new day. And so we're really excited. And watching her on her journey is it's just amazing. She's an amazing human being. So thank you. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> so I myself identify as bisexual. And it took me a long time to accept myself. And I really like being bi. I like using the word bisexual for myself. And I am also Mexican. I am Latino, Latinx. And sometimes to this day, I still struggle because sometimes I like 
people say that I'm white presenting. I'm not really bisexual, which is like a Mexican cowboy, if you don't know. I'm not super Mexican compared to, say, my biological sisters <laughs> or my parents. But there are times where I really like being Mexican and bisexual. I definitely feel a lot of pride for those two things when I have never felt pride for those before. And I'd like to know what makes you experience pride for your two-spirit identity, for your native identity, your queer, female, anything identity. And what can you say to other people? So, um, I was kind of forced to accept myself at a very young age, which is the reason why I am so confident now. Um, I started having thoughts, you know, as I was younger that I liked women. And when I was in seventh grade, I had told somebody about this. And at the time I did identify with bisexual. I do identify with lesbian now, however. Um, but I did tell somebody about it and they ended up telling their friends who ended up telling the entire school. So it was really hard for me to go back to school, especially when I was so young and still trying to experiment with my sexuality and my identity. And it made it very hard for me. You know, I was getting bullied left and right by peers. And at the time, it really hurt. And it really broke me down. And I want to say to any other young queer people who are listening to this right now, it does get better and you do find that confidence eventually. And I know that it's hard because I've experienced, because I've, I've, I've walked that walk before. And it is never fun being outed. You know, this is something that you want to be able to share at the time when you are ready. And unfortunately, I did not get that experience and so I kind of had to be tough and I had to be firm in who I was and I had to be confident in who I was to be able to make it out of the pain that was being inflicted on me by my peers at the time. So now I am very confident and very proud of my identity and even more proud to be two-spirit. I didn't always know what that was. I didn't know that I could identify with it at first. And a lot of that has to do with colonization. I didn't, I didn't know my ways. I didn't get to grow up around my people. I didn't have that support. Um, have, is this something that you have grown into? Are you, is it taking time to understand that in yourself? It's not necessarily something that I have grown into. It's something that I've always known that I was, um, so, you know, even as a child, like I, I was not like other regular female presenting children. You know, I had a bug collection. I like to get dirty. I like to skateboard. I liked to wear baggy clothes. And I would always be trying to shop in the boys section or the men's section. Um, and I think it wasn't until earlier, uh, later in life that, I started to assimilate to what society thought I was and saw me as. So I strived to hide my insecurities with makeup and uh, to dress to please other people. And it just, it wasn't who I was. And so now I embrace both uh, the feminine and the masculine. You are listening to Pride Nation 101. We are speaking with queer and indigenous rights activist Tatum Wakapi-Wee. And we heard from their mother, Tanda Blue Bear. Indigenous people, shine your light, we are equal. I remember the days when our prayers were illegal. I remember the days when being Indian was lethal. Yeah, we had a rough past, but get ready for the sequel. Get ready for the glorious comeback of our people, yeah. Rise up, all you warriors of love, all you answers to the prayers of our ancestors from above. I can feel it in my heart, can you feel it in your blood? I can hear the seven fire calling us to wake up, wake up. All nations rise, rise up cause now's your time. We don't have to hide anymore cause now.
That was Lila June, All Nations Rise, recommended by our guest Tatum Wakapi Wee. The way I think colonization has really impacted these gender roles, as Tanda Blue Bear was saying about being two-spirit earlier and how, you know, we have adapted this term to be able to uh, identify as a queer Native American person. You know, back before colonization, our ancestors had those same values. They saw each other as just people. You know, if you were to fall in love with somebody else, you were just falling in love with the person. You were falling in love with the spirit. You weren't falling in love with a man or a woman. And when colonization came over here, they put us in those schools and they told us the stories of Adam and Eve. And they told us, Adam is a man. Eve was made from the man, you know, automatically putting the man in the dominant power and the more powerful position and making Eve out to be some sort of liar, a trickster. And so when we were sent to those schools and they told us, you know, a man should look like this, a man should have short hair, a man should dress in a tux, a man should be the provider and work and the women should clean Blue belongs to men. Pink belongs to women. It's that repetitive assimilation that has now divided our community so much. When you go and speak with other members in Native communities, a lot of them are very accepting of two spirits. But there are some of our relatives that are still very much assimilated. And there's some tribes that are very accepting of... um, female presenting uh, people or, you know, uh, born as born as a woman to dance men's dances and to drum on the big drum because they have the spirit of a man. And some tribes are okay with that. Some tribes are, you know, doing two spirit specific powwows. And then you have other tribes that are trying to ban two-spirit marriage, that are trying to ban two-spirits from dancing in the powwows. So that's where we got to figure out how are we going to bridge this gap between our communities? How are we going to bring back our traditional ways? Because Christianity, especially like, I, I talked to a couple other Pomo people who told me that Christianity mixing with our culture really divided us as a people to where now we have half that is extremely traditional and we have half that is Christian. And I just, I really think that forced assimilation has to do with a lot of the problems that we see today in our communities. When you became sober, was that a real blossoming for you? It really was. It, it woke me up to a lot of things that I had been missing. Uh, so tying back into assimilation, I grew up in a Christian household because, well, I'll just say that I was displaced from my tribe for some reasons that I can't explain right now because it involves other people. Um, but I was raised in a Christian household where these things were not really accepted or talked about. And I think a lot of that drove me into the addiction as well and not really being able to fully accept myself. So getting sober for me was very eye-opening because it taught me culture, not so much just about my sexuality, but in a sense, yes, because I ended up learning what two-spirit was. And I ended up finding other Native people who I could relate to, uh, just the struggle of being Indigenous and queer and uh, born uh, born a female, you know, and it's almost like having an extra target on your back. Everywhere you go, you know, we have to worry about MMIW. Our, our murder rates are 10 times higher than the average. And... Um, domestic violence and sexual abuse is also at a very alarmingly high rate. If you were to ask almost any Native person to spirit, if they have ever been assaulted by anybody, their answer is going to be yes, because it happens so often. And I think a lot of the times why I ended up really identifying more with the masculine side and with 
the clothes that I wear, my appearance, not, not as much my energy, but my appearance was the abuse and the trauma that I went through being an indigenous person, being a queer person and having men force themselves on you because they think that they can turn you and having men constantly looking at my body and, you know, saying something about it or, you know, being like, Oh, you're sexy. Oh, you're so exotic. You know how men do. And it made me very uncomfortable. So now I think I also, you know, wear those baggy clothes as a means to stay safe. It's become almost like a security for me to dress in something where I can almost be invisible if I walk through a crowd of men. And I know that that shouldn't be the standard and it shouldn't matter how I look when I'm walking into certain spaces. But unfortunately it does because if I dress more feminine, if I walk out there and there's a bunch of creepy men standing outside, they're going to try to do something. I have to constantly, you know, have protection on me. I'm not allowed to walk anywhere by myself. And I'm an adult. If I want to go anywhere, my mom or my friend has to go with me. I have to share my location. I'm constantly looking over my shoulder when I have to run in real quick and use the bathroom at a gas station. And these are things, unfortunately, that I've had to think about since I was very young. You know, even being young and having people be like, oh, you know, there's men coming over. You got to put on something that's more, you know, covering. And I think that that's very damaging as well, because now it's gotten to the point where I don't identify as much with my feminine side as I would like to sometimes. And I also think that being indigenous on top of being queer is a completely different struggle than anybody else who could really understand that struggle that's in the LGBT community. It's as bad for us out there as it is for trans people walking into the right bathroom. You know, if, 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 if we're out there and we're presenting that way around people who are not okay with it, sometimes even our own people, we'll get attacked, we'll get criticized. You know, there, there were recently, I, I think there was recently, I saw something about a two-spirit dancer who did a completely different style of dance and she got harassed so much after they went through this that they, they said that they were stopping dancing. They gave up their regalia and they stopped dancing. And so that's when I say it is hard for as much as we accept two-spirit people in our community and we love our two-spirit people in our community, the assimilation that happened has caused such a divide that it's even our own people at this point, putting our own people down, harassing our own people, making making our two-spirit people feel unsafe to go outside and in public around other natives and it's just really sad to see such a divide at times. But then when things do happen, like the switch dances that are so beautiful and so powerful to be able to switch regalia and to walk in that other spirit's shoes for a minute, I think is a very beautiful thing to witness. And I recently witnessed it, I think maybe like a year ago and like the summer powwow there were the switch dancers and, you know, not all of them identify as part of the LGBT community, but it's still that beauty of breaking down what is considered to be normal and showing, you know, when uh, people who identify as a man are able to dress up in women's regalia and do women's dancing is destroying toxic masculinity. I know I got a little bit off track, but as I said, getting sober is really what got me to this point. We came to know of you through your activism. So could you tell us about it and how it's a part of your life? So I think being indigenous, activism is a part of all of our lives. When your rights are constantly being threatened and your people and your homelands and sacred sites are constantly under attack, you really have no choice but to 
become a part of that activism and to be the voice of justice. Being Indigenous, uh, you know, especially as young as I am, I am 24 years old, um, I've decided not to go to college because there's so many things that are going on in our communities right now that need help. First, we have a, you know, a loss of culture. We have so many people trying to reconnect and learn their language. It really becomes a part of your life, especially when you're young and there's barely water on a lot of the reservations. And we see our elders uh, suffer the consequences of colonization still. So you really don't have a choice. You have to stand up. It's it, it's a part of our life. It's become so normalized that we're constantly having to fight for our lives and our rights and our freedom to look and to dress and to practice our culture. Can you talk a little bit about your group, Women with Bows? Women with Bows, we are an all LGBTQ, all indigenous run organization. We started by bringing in food and supplies into the elders of Wounded Knee and standing with relatives all across Turtle Island, basically coming in to be the hope that people need and to be the voice that lets them know it's okay. You can be Native. It's okay. You know, you can accept yourself now. So we have gone into many reservations like this, bringing food and hope and Recently, we started an organization to do that. So now we're able to travel and also teach sustainability and help the houseless get on their feet again. And we have some amazing projects going on right now with that. We stand with all of our relatives, uniting all of our relatives all across Turtle Island from the north, the south, the east and the west. Um, We believe in unity and we believe in reconnection and helping our relatives get back to their culture. Activism has been just really crucial in salvaging my mental health. My my young years were really hard, and the more activism I've I've participated in, the more I've really felt a lot of joy in my life. Does this resonate with you? Yes, it does. It really does. I will tell you about how I really got started in all of this. So I I used to be an addict some years ago. You know, um, addict to drugs. You know, poverty really forces us to those really low places in indigenous communities, you know, when there's no way to climb up that ladder of success, we end up turning to drugs and we end up turning to gangs and we turn to alcohol and it's become a really big problem. And that was the case for me. You know, I was at my lowest low. I didn't know where to turn. Also, I didn't really have that solid connection with my people yet. So connection was really hard for me. At the time, I felt very disconnected. And my mom started activism. And then when I was at my lowest low, she gave me a choice. And she said, either you come out here with me and you experience what it's like to really live and what it's really like to find connection, or you're going to go to rehab while I'm, while I'm gone. And I chose to go out there. I spent a lot of time in Texas fighting for the rights of the land. When the border wall was going up, I was there protecting Native veteran cemetery that the wall was supposed to go through. So I really went headfirst into the activism and went to one of the most craziest places. And that's where I found connection. That's where I found people who were like-minded like me, who were able to have these conversations about things that had substance and things that were deeper than the things that I had experienced and made me more happy than my pain ever could. So I really do resonate when you say that you have found power, you have found love, you have found community in your activism and the work you do with community. I have too, and I have grown from that. And now, you know, I have been sober for two years And now I am helping and to spread awareness to other indigenous youth that those things aren't needed anymore. There's a new way of life that we're getting ready to build. And I am serving as a beacon of hope that if I can do it, they can do it too. When we started this group, I put everything that I have ever earned, all that I have ever saved uh, for myself, I put into starting this group and this organization and my mom did too as well. 
We put in everything we had for this organization. And as inflation is spiking, we're just trying to keep our head above water. You know, we have to try to survive as well as pay for our business, as well as pay our rent, uh, you know, and all of these other things. And right now, funding has been really hard because everybody's struggling right now. Everybody's struggling to keep their businesses above water, to keep their family fed, to get gas in their car to go to work. And it's just been very tough. And especially coming from poverty, it's been even harder because, you know, we don't have people around us who have the kind of money to help us out. You know, we're doing this from completely from the ground up. So how could people listening support you? If you want to support us, you could go to womenwithbows.org to support our journey. And we have some amazing merch on there. We even have some indigenized holiday merch on there for those who celebrate. Uh, We got amazing ornaments, blankets, pillows, T-shirts, hoodies. Um, This helps us continue to do what we do and to be boots on the ground uh, serving our community. You are listening to Pride Nation 101, and we are talking with Tatum Wakapiwi, a Kashaya Pomo queer indigenous rights activist. For us older adults, I'm 55. We all hope that by now, in elementary schools, that the stigma associated with adopting pieces of the opposite gender's role is subsiding. We have an informant, Acorn, on the line who is eight years old. Acorn, what are the problems that kids face if, say, a boy wants to wear a dress at school? Like, people would make fun of them or say, ha ha Even now, if you were able to create a Pokemon card that was like non-binary little pieces of boy and girl, what would that card's name be? Since I just read a book about Pokemon and it included a lot of like Pokemon and one of them was Hitmonchan, I would choose Hitmoncha. And what's so special about that card? Well, I just thought of it because it's like in Spanish, you would say a word. For a girl, it would be, it would end with a, and with a boy, it would end with o. So I just combined Hitmonchan with that. Uh-huh. So Hitmoncha. You know, a lot of times in Spanish, people use the letter X at the end of a word. So it could be Hitmonchex. Yeah. But that would be weird because Chex is a cereal. Mm-hmm. Do you think that would help kids learn to accept that some boys want to wear dresses and some girls don't care about dresses at all? Maybe. What if a girl wants to wear a dress but also wants to be a boy? Then... I have no idea. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Acorn. It's time to go look for some chipmunks. <laughs> so if you are a young person or a person of any age in a bad place right now and you're feeling the need to get some help, please reach out. We have some resources for you. We have a local 24-7 crisis line. You can call them at one 838 If you'd like to reach a counselor from the Trevor Project over phone, call 1-866-488-7386. Via text is 678-678. For a self-harm prevention line, text 711-711. And the National Suicide Hotline recently changed their number to 988. Don't be afraid to ask for support. Yeah, don't suffer in silence. You could feel a lot better in the future and go on to make a radio show. Lord knows it worked out for us. Yeah. The other thing I want to recommend is is that 12-step programs are not for everybody, but they really do help. And sometimes it's just a step where you need you know, some support and a group that will get you out of a bad situation. There are many, many kinds of 12-step groups from Alcoholics Anonymous NA, Narcotics Anonymous, Self-Mutilation Anonymous. They are all great, and you can find them online. There are also ones that are specifically geared to LGBTQ people, to indigenous people, and also even in small towns like ours, you can find in-person groups, but the online ones are really helpful as well.
Tatum, there were a couple things you mentioned at the start that weren't part of our questions. Are there other things you want to talk about? Let's talk about the Indian Welfare Act. So the Indian Child Welfare Act was set up as a way to protect indigenous people from being exposed to assimilation and Christianity and being placed in white homes. The Indian Child Welfare Act basically states that if a Native parent is unfit home for the Native child, that other people within that tribe or other Native foster parents can foster that child or adopt that child so that the, you know, white people aren't coming in and taking our children again. Pretty much any state that is red, they're trying to overturn this so that the church will have authority to come in and take indigenous children again, which we have already seen does not work. They cannot be trusted with our children. I mean, we are finding children over in Canada, what, at least 10,000 and counting right now. And they haven't even began to really start searching the United States. I know a couple of the children were brought back to Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota, but they haven't began to search for my tribe's babies. They haven't began to search other places in the United States. And there were over 400 of these residential boarding schools and missions in California. Another thing that I want to talk about, too, is the girls and boys ranches, primarily on the West Coast of California. I recently found out that when my mom was young, she was stolen by the church. My grandmother fled and ran from her tribe with my mom, trying to seek safety. And the church opened their doors to her and was like, in exchange for you staying here and getting, you know, hot meals and a place to sleep at night, we're going to make you work long days in our, our fields, in our farms and stuff. She, she had a kid to think about. So, of course, she's going to take that offer. These girls' ranches and boys' ranches would steal these young women's children while they were working. And my mom was a part of that. One day, the church took her, and my mom was never seen by her mother again. Her mother didn't know whether her child was okay, whether her child was alive. Her child was just gone. And the things that they told the people who were fostering these children at the time or adopting these children is that the biological parents didn't want them, that they were unfit parents. The churches would also get money from this too by telling the adopters that, oh, this is a bill that the uh, biological parents owe us, so you just need to pay off this bill of $100. And so they would do that. My grandma has the receipt and everything. So my grandma wasn't even told the truth either. And luckily, my grandma was not one of those people who were racist. She tried to make sure that my mom grew up knowing that she was Native American and had a connection. And then when it came to me, for some reason, I was more in the church scheme at my age because she, she wanted me to go to church more than anything. When I was forced to go to church all of those years and I finally got out and was in a place I could feel safe in, my mom started trying to teach me the culture. Anything that felt like I had to do something, I wasn't open to it at the time. I learned as I got older and as I was more willing to, because, you know, religious trauma is real. I didn't want to learn anything else that seemed spiritual or anything. I just, I would identify as like a non-believer of pretty much anything. I mean, I knew there was a spiritual connection, but I just really didn't know how to tap into that until I got closer with my indigenous community. They are trying to take away the ICWA Act on November 9th. It is on the chopping block. And there is a number that you can text to be able to sign the petition. You're going to text PCCPGW at 50409. If anything that I have learned recently by how I became to be here and why I'm here is very sad. And I can't afford to let that happen to any other children. I, I can't even begin to imagine how many other young people are out there with the same story as mine that don't even know yet. How many mothers went to bed not knowing where their children were. And at that time when these things were going on, my grandmother was not allowed to speak up about this. My grandma could not just be like, 
hello, 911. They weren't going to listen to a Native American woman. We had barely maybe had our religious freedom at the time, but we didn't have rights as human beings. And so to challenge the church was suicide. You're just setting yourself up for failure if you're an indigenous woman trying to call out the church. Even now, we know what the church has done with our children. We know how many counts of genocide the United States has. Is anybody being held accountable? No, because we're Native. As much as people want to say that we have that right, we don't. We're out there in the streets constantly talking about these things, constantly talking about our children, demanding that they start the digging and that they start looking for our children. And they don't hear us. They refuse to apologize for anything that they have done. And what I would really like to see done is I want to see every single priest and nun that was alive during that time teaching at those schools. I want them to be arrested and I want them to be held to the full extent of the law. I want churches to be shut down until further investigation. And I'm not saying believing in a certain religion is wrong. Everybody is entitled to believe in what they want to believe. But when your religion is responsible for unaliving over now where we're estimating at least a million. When you've committed that much murder and genocide, that needs to be acknowledged. Your doors should not be allowed to be open to young children. And we already were told that, you know, the, the Catholic Church has how many sexual assault cases against them right now? Why are their doors still open? Why are they coming for our children again? Because I'll tell you one thing, they are lucky that we are only taking statues and holding space in their buildings and being loud on their sidewalks and, and filling their streets with the color of our regalia. Because we would never, never come for their children the way they are coming for ours, the way that they have come for ours, the way that they continue to come for ours countless times over and over and over. We would never go for their women the same way they go for our women. It really makes me sick. It is so atrocious that this is even being considered given all the recent information that has come to light about Canada in the United States, you know, contributing in this genocide and mass murder and sexually abusing children. I don't think it's going to go through, but how is it even being considered? If this happens, there's going to be thousands of more children just like me going through the same struggle, struggling with their identity, struggling with their spirituality, struggling with their connection, struggling to find who they are, struggling to learn their language and their dances and their culture and their people. It's the last step in the assimilation process. If this goes through, we're going to have no choice but to stand up and fight for our lives. Because if they're able to take our children again and assimilate, there's not going to be any of us in the future that still know the ancient ways. They're going to be able to erase us entirely. And that's why they start with the children, because the children are defenseless. The children don't have a voice in court. The children don't have a voice to the law. So they attack our children because that is the best way that they can get to us. So if this does happen, guys, that you are going to see so many natives take the streets because there will be nothing else for us to fight for. We're going to be fighting until something changes. Ooh, and again, I will say for anybody who wants to help protect the Indian Welfare Act to please text PCCPGW to 50409. Thank you. I also want to talk a little bit about what some may call the gay agenda. Mm. Recently, with all the uh, new inclusive TV shows that are coming out representing BIPOC and queer characters in books, in movies, in TV shows, I've seen so much stir of people being like, why are you gays always trying to push your agenda on us? Where? Where have we ever had an agenda? Matter of fact, where have we ever been able to have representation? I grew up my entire life watching some extremely sleazy straight relationships in my cartoons and in my movies and all of that. And I still grew up gay. I still grew up and was like, women, yes. 
<laughs> so I really just want to say that is brainwashing that they use on every single one of us. Every single one of us is told that this is how the events go. You are a kid, you go to school, you get out of school, go to more school, find a partner, get married, have kids, die. I mean, this is so repetitive that everything that we watch, everything that we hear, everything that little eyes see, and I still turned out gay. And so I think it is very important that we do have queer representation in our movies, in our TV shows, in books even. A, a lot of things that bug me is that people are like, oh, that's too sexual for children. It doesn't have to be. That's not what's going on in these. Having a gay character is not sexual in the slightest. It's just more realistic because there are straight people. There are gay people. Both need to be represented. Straight has always been represented. And I think it's amazing now being able to see these new things come to life and all these different amazing characters that people can really resonate with and had I had a character on TV I could relate myself to, identify with, I would have gone through a lot less. I, I, I would have loved myself a lot more. The more that we talk about these things too in school, it reduces bullying. It reduces suicide rates. You can't go wrong with it, with teaching about other identities in school because had that been taught while I was in school, Maybe I would have been accepted by my peers. These are things that our children need to know about because by our children being educated, we keep other children safe. Thank you for letting me finish. Thank you for letting me share this space and my thoughts and my emotions and struggles with you all tonight. You guys are beautiful, wonderful people. I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate your outlet and being able to give people who don't typically have a voice, a place to be heard. And thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And I am so glad I met you guys. Thank you, Tatum. And thank your mom for bringing up such a wonderful human being. Thank you so much again for meeting with us. This has definitely been an interview to remember in the simplest of terms. Also, do you watch the Owl House? Yes! I love the Owl House. Oh my God. I love it. Loose. Ah, a BIPOC gay character. Yes. Yeah. Did you hear that it. Velma and Scooby-Doo just came out as gay? Yes. Once again, to sign the petition to protect the Indian Child Welfare Act, text PCCPGW to 50409. That's PCCPGW to 50409. We wanted to let you know about a podcast called This Land from Crooked Media, the whole second season is about this effort to overturn ICWA, the high-powered conservative lawyers behind it, and the fossil fuel money, of course. Check it out. It's This Land from Crooked Media. Tatum and Tanda's group, Women with Bows, is raising money to bring food, supplies, clothes, blankets, water, baby diapers and formula, and more to Northern California reservations and farther afield, even up to Pine Ridge, South Dakota. They do this every year before the storms get really bad. It's so hard for their elders to survive the winters there without freezing, running out of food, needing their windows fixed, getting propane heaters going. Any support would be wonderful. You can, and I highly recommend, going to their website, W-O-M-E-N-W-I-T-H-B-O-W-S dot O-R-G where you can see the faces and feel the inspiration of this team of women dedicated to the elevation of their people, queer indigenous healers vested in their community, recognizing that to see the beauty in the world, they must walk and work together in order to create it, to be a catalyst for the positive change that we all need now.
fellow activists songs and chants from the September 28th rally in Sacramento in front of the California Department of Natural Resources, Pomo Land Back. Pomo Land Back Now. We would like to thank you for spending the last hour with us, Chad Oliver Swimmer and Roland Corey Medina in Pride Nation 101. And we would definitely like to thank Tatum and Tanda and Women with Bows for risking it all and telling us about it on our show. Yeah. We also want to thank our intern, Ravel Gautier, for some quality editing of the sounds you just have been listening to. And a shout out to Alicia Bales and Rich Colbertson of KZYX for helping to make this show happen. And of course, the views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the staff or management of any station that airs Pride Nation 101. Only those of ourselves and our guests. See you next month. See you next month. This has been a production of KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.